stories where we love to hear your stories about a loved one who's passed or about your very first job as a kid. And we've done a whole lot of stories from you and by you in your own voice. And today, well, this story is about a quirk. Yes, a quirk. And we've all got them. And we've all got a story around our quirks. And our families have certainly stories about our quirks. Well, a listener and a friend in Chicago, Nick Zagoda, joins us now against his wife's advice to discuss his hygiene quirk. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. It's always good to speak to you. You bet. And Nick, we hear that great Chicago accent. We love accents on this show. And uh, tell us a little bit and tell the audience what you do for a living and why your wife just implored you not to do this. I've been a lifetime Chicagoan. As you can tell, I've tried to lose this accent for 60 years and I gave up about 20 years ago. And, uh, 20 years ago when I was 40, I gave up. I'm 60 now. I've lived here my whole life, and uh, and it, it's part of me, I guess, and I can't get rid of it. I have a law practice downtown in Chicago. I've got two partners, and we've got 11 other lawyers that work for us. We're corporate and transactional lawyers who do sophisticated uh, corporate and transactional and M&A work on a, on a daily basis, both nationally and internationally. And when I told my wife, my friend Lee wanted to speak about this today, she said, are you out of your mind telling people about this? If I were you, I'd be hiding it. <laughs> but I don't think I've got anything to hide. I don't think, I think everybody's got something, and, and this happens to be mine. Well, that's good, and you're owning it, and I love that. So let's talk about it, this hygiene thing you have. There's some kind of story that encapsulates it all about you and a commuter train. Tell the story, Nick. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not so good with people and uh, shaking hands and eating at communal tables and et cetera, et cetera. People I know are fine. People I don't know, I have no idea where it started. I just uh, don't feel good in positions where I don't know people and we're very close. And I never take the train. I've been driving downtown from my suburban home where my wife and I have lived for 38 years to uh, downtown Chicago every day for 38 years. And my wife will tell me on occasion, what are you crazy? You're complaining about the traffic. Why don't you jump on the train and i say cast the train we're just close to people we don't know if we could get a private train car where i could pick the people that come on the train car that i knew that they don't have to be young or old rich or poor nice or mean i just have to know them unfortunately that's not the way the commuter system works in chicago so they're with strangers on the train and last winter it was a horrible day we had two or three feet of snow and it was still snowing, and I said to my wife, I have to get downtown today. And she said, well, get on the train. It'll, you know you're going to get there. It's not going to take you two and a half hours to get there and two and a half hours to get home. And I said, Ken, I just can't do the train. She said, you have to do the train. It's crazy to drive. It, it, you're, it, you might get stuck downtown. You don't know what's going to happen. Well, I got on a train. I got on a train at my little suburban train stop. It's about a 35-minute train ride. I was fine till the next stop. A woman got on and sat next to me. I text my wife. I said, Kath, I, I don't know if this is going to work. There's a woman sitting next to me on a train. 
She said, Nick, you're on the train. There's going to be someone sitting next to you. Just relax. You're fine. The woman takes her coat off. She puts her takes her coat off, and it's on my leg. I text my wife, Kath. There's a woman next to me on the train. She take she's taking her coat off, and now her coat is on my leg. And she, Kathy texts back very nicely. Please just ask her to remove your coat from her coat from your knee, and everything will be fine. And I said, ma'am, pardon me, but your coat is on my knee. And she gives me a glaring look, and she moves her coat from my knee. Then she starts coughing. And I said to Kathy, in the text, Kath, now she's coughing. And I'm getting freaked out here. I think you're going to have to pick me up at the next stop. And she said, okay, listen, if you think I'm going to pick you up at the next stop, you're out of your mind. So you <laughs> figure this out, look out the window, ignore the coffin, read your book. I'm trying to read my book. I can't read my book. The woman's coughing. So now she starts sneezing. This is two stops later. So I tell my wife, the University of Chicago is between my house and downtown Chicago. I say, Kathy, you have to pick me up. I have to get off the train at the University of Chicago. This woman is now she's sneezing and she's not covering her nose and, and I'm in a mess and I don't know what to do. And I can't, there's nowhere to go. There's people standing in the aisles of the train. I can't possibly move. I can't do You have to pick. And she said, listen, genius, if I drive to the University of Chicago, it'll take me two hours to get there. Then it'll take both of us two and a half or three hours to get home. So here's what I suggest you do. I suggest you forget about this for a while. And get, I said, you're not going to come and say, she, I am not going to come and save you. She did not come and save me. I survived. Rather scarred, I might add. But I survived. <laughs> Went downtown, went straight to uh, the Union League Club in Chicago, where I've been a member forever, took a shower, changed my clothes, and was able to go to work for a full day without working. But thank goodness I have a change of clothes there. Or otherwise, that would never, ever would I have been able to last a full day. And thanks for that story. And you're listening to Nick Zagoda, and he's a lawyer in Chicago and a friend. And this segment, well, it's my quirk is what we're calling it. And we want to hear your quirk and send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We've all got one, folks, and just confess. Confess, share it with us. I mean, and I love the way Nick owns his. He just owns his. One day I'll write up mine. Uh, mine's just as embarrassing as his, and it's got to be embarrassing. And so whatever your quirk is, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Nick Zagoda's quirk. Well, a lot of our quirks, those of us who are neat freaks, and I am one, I never step into a public shower without something on my feet, ever. People look at me funny. I don't care. I'm wearing something on my feet or I ain't getting in. My quirk, just one of them, here on Our American Stories.
I'll tell you the story of Billy the Kid And I'll tell of the things that this young outlaw did Way out in the west when the country was young When the gun was your law and your law was your gun This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories And our next story is about a kid named Billy This kid captured the imaginations of so many Americans That by 1911... He'd become the subject of one of Hollywood's movies, the self-titled silent film, Billy the Kid. Let's go to our own Greg Hengler as he serves up this most compelling American story. Billy the Kid was the most notorious gunman of the Wild West. In myth... He's a lone, sometimes psychopathic outlaw. No book, and especially no movie, has ever nailed the kid's story. But the Billy the Kid enigma is about to end. To accomplish such a daunting task, I got in touch with a Billy the Kid expert who just happens to be one of the best storytellers in America. Roger McGrath is a retired Marine from Pacific Palisades who grew up surfing the California coastline and became a historian with a reputation for passion and insight into the lives and times of frontier men and women. For him, these long-gone characters are as real as any modern adventurer. The Los Angeles Times wrote, When McGrath talks of his characters, it is as though he were an old friend relating tales of a bygone relationship he misses very dearly. Roger McGrath is a regular on the History Channel and author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. In the 1870s, the American West was a refuge for outcasts as the nation was recovering from the recent devastation of the Civil War. Sparsely populated, lacking roads, railroad tracks, and effective law enforcement, this was the world of Billy the Kid. In fact, life was so hard that 80% of the population was under 30. It was in this harsh and lawless place where a legend was forged. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath with the story of Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid is an American legend. It's been portrayed as everything from a gallant young man fighting for justice to a psychopathic killer. I think the truth lies much closer to the gallant young man. I may have a bias, though. He was the first outlaw I learned about when I was a little kid. Seemed like a hero to me, especially because he performed most of his daring do while he was still a teenager. Also, he had a name with a ring to it, Billy the Kid. And all great outlaws need that. Jesse James, Black Bart, Butch Cassidy. Now, despite this legendary status, Billy the Kid, well, he's a bit of a mystery in his young life. We know his parents were Irish immigrants, and he was born in New York City in 1859. His birth name was Henry McCarty, and he had a brother named Joseph. His father was Patrick, and the, the mother was Catherine. The father died when the boys were still young, and the mother took them west to Indiana, then to Kansas, then to New Mexico, and that's about all we know about his first 14 years. Well, now Henry McCarty was turning 14 years old. 
He had a great smile. I was already melting girls' hearts. And despite buck teeth, he was described as a handsome boy. In 1877, he started stealing horses from Arizona ranches and selling them at mining camps. This got him arrested, and he was shackled and thrown in jail. Within a day, though, he made a daring escape. Six months later, he was arrested again. But again, he broke free. The kid was gaining a reputation as an escape artist. In August of 1877, he quite openly rode into Bonita, a small settlement next to Camp Grant in Arizona. In Bonita, he ran in an old nemesis, Frank Cahill, and he had pummeled the kid in a, in a recent fistfight. Well, now the two of them exchanged words and a second fight erupted. This time, the kid pulled a gun and put a bullet in Cahill's belly. A day later, Cahill died. We have just a jump for you. Early in the fall of 1877, the kid drifted north to Lincoln County and found work there on a, a ranch owned by John Tunstall. Tunstall was a 24-year-old Englishman who had arrived in the New Mexican territory there in 1876. He had a plan to take control of Lincoln County. Now, business in Lincoln County focused on supplying the Fort Stanton Army Post and the Mescalero Apache Reservation with beef and corn and flour. Dunstall reckoned that he could make a small fortune if he monopolized that trade. Trouble was, there was already someone in Lincoln County doing just that, and that someone was Lawrence Murphy. Rumor has it that you're going to be bidden against me for the government beef contracts. Residents of Lincoln County referred to Murphy's company as the house. You have a beef outfit and a store. I have a beef outfit and a store. You're going to try to make money. I'm going to try to make money. It's simple and it's fair. Now here comes John Tunstall. He thought he could overthrow the house and establish his own monopoly. Tensions mounted until each side began hiring gunmen. Get ready for hell. It was into all this that an 18-year-old boy, known as the Kid, <laughs> but now calling himself William H. Bonney, he walked into all this. But boy, this Kid could ride a horse with the best of them and could shoot a revolver or a rifle with incredible speed and accuracy. And although they don't normally show it in movies today, but like all good gunmen of the era, he practiced daily. He also had nerves of steel and was cool and deliberate under fire. Well, now that these tensions were mounting in Lincoln County, one incident could start a war. That incident came on an evening in February 1878. A posse swept down upon Tunstall. Tunstall was out on the trail helping to drive a herd of horses. Several of Tunstall's hired hands, including Billy the Kid, were with the herd also, but they were strung out and far from Tunstall and didn't see what happened. The Lincoln County War raged for two years and Billy the Kid immediately became the leader of the Regulators. Let's go, boys. Now, some of his exploits simply defy the imagination. The kid 
and several of his regulator buddies ambushed William Brady, the Lincoln County Sheriff, who was walking down Main Street in, in Lincoln along with four of his deputies. Now, now, Brady was a fair and honest sheriff, but because of his friendship with Murphy, he was aligned with the House faction, and that would spell his doom. As Sheriff Brady and his deputies walked down Lincoln's Main Street, Billy the Kid and several other regulators, hidden behind an adobe wall, opened fire. Brady and, and one of his deputies, George Hinman, were, were killed on the spot. Another deputy, Billy Matthews, was wounded, but Matthews and a couple other deputies uh, managed to take off uh, running and found cover. And they sent around clean through the kid's thigh. Somehow he managed to limp to his horse, pull himself into the saddle, and escape. Another one of the regulators, Big Jim French, was also wounded, but he was unable to ride. Nonetheless, he managed to hide in town. That night, the kid returned, and he was able to rescue Big Jim French. And the kid had this kind of reputation throughout the Lincoln County War. And if you were the, the kid's comrade in arms, if you were his pal, he would defy death to protect you. I'll sing you a true song of Billy And when we come back, we're going to continue the story of Billy the Kid, thanks to Roger McGrath and Greg Hengler. Billy the Kid's story, here on Our American Stories, and to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org, our This Day in Histories, our American Dreamers series, our Lewis and Clark greatest and most epic road trip ever. All of it's there and so much more. More on Billy the Kid after these messages. Silver City, he went to the bed. Way out west with a knife in his hand. At the age of 12 years, he killed his first man. Mexican maids play guitars and sing songs about Billy, their boy bandit king. Before his young manhood had reached its set in, he'd a notch on his pistol for 21 men. I'll sing you a true song of Billy the Kid I'll sing of some desperate deeds that he did Way out in New Mexico long, long ago When a man's only chance was his old 44 This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Marty Robbins. And we're talking about Billy the Kid. And we're talking with Greg Hengler, as always doing the piece, and Roger McGrath is the voice you're hearing. And we continue with Roger and Greg and this great American story. Then in the middle of July occurred what's been called the five-day fight or the Battle of Lincoln. The kid himself and ten other regulators were in Max Wayne's house. Now on the other side, 
the uh, new county sheriff, George Pepin, we could call these the law and order forces, well, they numbered about 40. Now, the shooting started. After that initial blast, there was intermittent shooting both day and night, and this went on day after day. On the fourth day of the battle, to try to serve warrants for the arrest of McSween, a deputy approached the house and shouted for McSween to surrender. McSween replied that he would not surrender and that he had warrants for the arrest of the posse members. The deputy demanded to see such warrants. Big Jim French shouted out of the McSween house, Our warrants are in our guns. You sucking sons of bitches. Well, this then would be a fight to the finish. Sheriff Pepin decided to set the McSween house on fire. They lit it, boys. They lit the house. By nightfall, the fire was roaring, and it consumed all of the McSween house but the kitchen. And there in the kitchen, the regulators huddled. Well, at 9 o'clock at night, they decided to make a break for it. And the kid led them. Out the back door they went, headed for the gate at the rear of the property, but suddenly they were illuminated by flames, and Pepin's men opened fire. Half of the fleeing regulators were cut down, but the kid and four others made it through the back gate. The kid had escaped once again. By now, the Lincoln County War caught the attention of officials in Washington. So Washington took action. The territorial governor of New Mexico was removed from office and a new one was appointed. The new governor was Lou Wallace. You could say that Wallace was a true Renaissance man. He was, as we're seeing, a lawyer and a politician and a soldier. But he was also a writer, a musician, and an adventurer. By November, everything was going so smoothly that Wallace issued what he called a, a, a general pardon to all those who had been involved in the Lincoln County War who had not yet been indicted by a grand jury. Wallace now felt he was done with the problem, and he resumed work on a, a novel he had started sometime earlier. Each night he secluded himself in the governor's mansion there in Santa Fe and wrote a few more pages of manuscript. It was eventually published as Ben-Hur. Yes, the Ben-Hur that we all know. The author, Lou Wallace. In February 1879, a peace conference was proposed to be held in Lincoln. This would be between the old warring factions. Billy the Kid endorsed the proposal. The conference ended with a general handshaking. And then the boys decided to go out and get drunk. In their revelry on Main Street in Lincoln, they shot a man to death. This man was Houston Chapman. The killing didn't seem to phase any of the boys in the least. I'm hungry. They simply continued down the street to the next saloon and another round of drinks. But the killing did prompt Governor Lou Wallace to leave Santa Fe, finally make a trip down to Lincoln. While in Lincoln, a messenger brought Wallace a note from one of those participants in the peace conference. This participant explained that I was present when Mr. Chapman was murdered and know who did it. I am called Kid Antrim.
but Antrim is my stepfather's name. Governor Wallace lost no time in sending a reply to this kid Antrim and setting up a secret meeting. On the night of St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1879, the governor and the outlaw rendezvoused in a small house. Wallace said that the kid, as instructed, knocked softly on the side door. Come in. Promptly at the appointed time, 9 p.m. The door was opened and the kid entered warily, rifle in one hand and revolver in the other. I'm Governor Wallace. A small uh, room was illuminated only by a flickering oil lamp. And here sat the older governor. I'm a man of my word, Billy. As we know, a scholar, a general, a lawyer, an author. And now he was facing a 19-year-old kid, a cowboy, a cat wrestler, horse thief, gunfighter, but also the leader of the regulators. Let's take a seat. And Wallace said he would contrive an arrest of the kid and confine him in Lincoln until a district court could be convened. And that the, the kid would have to identify the killers at Chapman for the grand jury. Trigger. And in return for all this, You'll testify. Wallace would protect the kid from prosecution for the killing of Sheriff Brady and, and others. If you testify in court, I'll let you go scot-free with a pardon in your pocket. Well, the kid agreed to it. You'll have our full protection. And a few days later, he was arrested and confined in a private home in Lincoln. In a letter to the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Governor Wallace wrote, a precious specimen nicknamed the kid, whom the sheriff is holding here in the plaza, is an object of tender regard. I heard singing and music the other night. Going to the door, I found minstrels of the village actually serenading the fellow in his prison. Well, the governor might also have mentioned the girls and young women of Lincoln who cooked special treats for the kid and pined for him. Buck teeth or not, the kid was a babe magnet. After testifying, Billy the Kid simply rode out of Lincoln. He had kept his end of the bargain, and now it was up to Governor Wallace to protect the kid from any prosecution. He announced a $500 reward for the capture of the kid. In today's money, that'd be more than $50,000. In 1880, Pat Garrett was elected the new sheriff of Lincoln County. Prior to becoming sheriff, Garrett had known the kid as a casual friend. Two had spent some time together drinking in saloons, and Garrett was well familiar with the kid's habits and his favorite haunts. Sheriff Garrett got a tip, be late in December 1880, that the kid and a few of his gang members were in an old stone cabin at Stinking Springs. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happened in that cabin what happened with that tip, and you're listening to Roger McGrath and an author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And when we come back, the rest of this great story, the Billy the Kid story, and we go out with a song by Billy Joel called The Ballad of Billy the Kid. Well, one cold day a posse captured Billy 
And the judge said, string him up for what it did Cowboys and their kin Like the sea came pouring in To watch the hanging of Billy the Kid Well, he never traveled heavy Yes, he always rolled alone And he soon put many older guns to shame Underneath the Boot Hill grave that bears his name From a town known as Oyster Bay, Long Island Rode a boy with a six-pack in his hand And his daring life of crime made him a legend in his time Well, I went down And we're back, and we're going to continue with the story of Billy the Kid and return to Roger McGrath in that cabin. Sheriff Garrett got a tip, be late in December 1880, that the Kid and a few of his gang members were in an old stone cabin at Stinking Springs. Garrett and his deputies surrounded the cabin, and they waited for sunrise. Soon one of the kids' men, Charlie Beaudry, walked out of the, the cabin to feed their horses, which were tethered just outside the cabin's door. Well, Garrett called out to Beaudry to throw his hands up. Instead, Beaudry reached for his guns. A dozen rifles barked, and Beaudry was riddled with bullets. From inside the cabin, the kid yelled out, asking if that was Pat Garrett out there. A following exchange occurred. Garrett, I'm here. The kid, Pat, why don't you come up like a man and give us a fair fight? Garrett, I don't aim to. The kid, you old long-legged son of a... Finally, late in the afternoon, a stick with a white rag on it was waved from the cabin. Well, now, once in Santa Fe and in jail, the kid wrote to Governor Wallace for help. Said the kid, I have done everything I promised you, and you have done nothing that you promised me. Dear sir, I would like to see you for a few moments. Dear sir, I wish you would come down to the jail and see me. I think when you think the matter It looks over, to me like I'm getting left in the cold. For the last time, I ask, will you keep your promise? The governor simply ignored the kids' pleas. Two weeks later, Governor Wallace took time away from writing Ben-Hur to sign the kids' death warrant. Guilty. This court directs that the prisoner be returned to Lincoln and confined there in jail until May 13th. And that on that day, the said William Bonney, alias Kidd, alias William Antrim, 
be hanged by the neck until his body be dead. The kid was chained and shackled and loaded into a wagon for the journey up to Lincoln. Five heavily armed guards rode alongside the wagon and another three guards were in the wagon with the kid. One of those in the wagon was Deputy U.S. Marshal Bob Ollinger. Ollinger was a big guy, tall, powerfully built. He was also a bully. He took great pleasure in tormenting his prisoner. The kid detested him. By late April, the kid was lodged in a second floor room of the county courthouse in Lincoln. Bob Ollinger and uh, James Bell guarded him around the clock. They even drew a chalk line on the floor around the kid and said that if he crossed that line, he'd be shot dead. And Ollinger also regularly invited the kid to try to make a break for it. Do me a favor, kid. Make a run for it. Bob. Go on. Cross the line. Bet you can get away. Freedom. Try it. So said Ollinger. I'll, I'll have the pleasure of blasting you in half with my shotgun. At noon on April 28th, Ollinger escorted some other prisoners across the street to a hotel restaurant for lunch and left Bell with the kid. The kid asked Bell to take him to the privy, behind the courthouse. Once inside the privy, the kid found a gun hidden there, planted by a friend. Back in the courthouse, they started up the stairs to the second story, and suddenly the kid whirled about, pulled out a gun. Bell leaped for the gun, and the kid shot him once. Bell staggered down the stairs and fell dead into the arms of the courthouse janitor. The kid then climbed up the stairs and there on the second floor grabbed Ollinger's double-barreled shotgun. At the same time, Ollinger emerged from the hotel across the street. The janitor yelled to him, the kid has killed Bell. Bonnie's killed Bell. The next thing the stunned Ollinger heard came from the kid. Hello, Bob. Hello, Bob. Look up and see what you get. Ollinger looked up at the second floor and saw the kid leaning out of a window with Ollinger's own double-barreled shotgun. Ollinger said, yes, and he's killed me too. At that very moment, the kid squeezed both triggers in a double load of buckshot. More than a quarter pound of lead tore in Ollinger's chest. He dropped to the ground dead. The kid then merely walked out onto the second floor balcony of the courthouse and greeted the residents of Lincoln. The kid explained that he not wanted to kill Bill and was sorry about it. Ollinger, on the other hand, deserved killing, said the kid. Shackles and all, the kid then walked downstairs and into the street. With his booted foot, he turned Ollinger's body over and said, you aren't gonna round me up again. Kid then spent another hour in town, talking to people, shaking hands, and having his shackles pried off. 
with that, and armed with two revolvers and a Winchester, he mounted a horse and rode out of Lincoln, waving at many teary-eyed young women. Now for the next three months, Sheriff Pat Garrett and his deputies pursued the kid. The kid should have gone to Mexico, and I guess in a way we all wished he had done that. But instead he frequented many of his old haunts. After more than two months of chasing the kid in vain, Garrett got a tip that the kid was at Pete Maxwell's ranch. And there on the night of July 14, 1881, Pat Garrett positioned himself in a room the kid was using. Garrett's deputies were hidden nearby. Where was the kid? He was out in Maxwell's peach orchard making love to a girlfriend. Meanwhile, in the darkened room, Garrett waited and waited. Finally, the kid, unarmed and barefoot, stepped through the doorway, but suddenly stopped. He sensed someone was in the room, and he thought it might be one of Maxwell's workers, and he called out, KNS, who is it? Garrett replied, by shooting twice at the kid. I got him. One bullet hit the kid in the chest, penetrating his heart. He slumped to the floor, dead. He was 21 years old and already a legend. He became an even greater legend in his death. Kid is subject of dozens of books and dozens of movies. Among the actors who have played him are Johnny Mac Brown, Roy Rogers, Robert Taylor, Bob Steele, Buster Crabb, Don Berry, Scott Brady, Paul Newman, and Audie Murphy. Many have sung about Billy the Kid as well, including Woody Guthrie, Billy Joel, Charlie Daniels, Tom Petty, Rye Cooter, and Marty Robbins. Billy the Kid, a legend in life and a legend in death. And great job on that, Greg, as always. And thank you to Roger McGrath. He's a regular on the History Channel and author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And when we can bring stories to you like that, we love to do it. And again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. His voice, by the way, Rogers, it sounds so much like Stephen Ambrose's. If you ever get a chance to hear a Stephen Ambrose talk, he wrote Band of Brothers. He wrote Undaunted Courage, the terrific book uh, about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And we spend a lot of time on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Our most epic road trip ever is... Well, it's more than 14 parts now, and it continues to grow. Again, Billy the Kid's story here on Our American Stories. 
And we'll go out with more great music about this man, this legend, this myth. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about just about everything. And this one is one of the great music stories that we've ever told, and also one of the great American stories ever told. He did it without any formal music training, and by himself. In 1918, while serving in the U.S. Army, he wrote, God Bless America. But he couldn't sell the song, and so he did what songwriters do when such things happen. He stuck it in a drawer. He dusted the song off in 1938 as Hitler was rising to power in a far-off land and tried to sell it again. This time, there was a buyer. Kate Smith recorded it, and the rest was history. The song became America's unofficial national anthem, right up there with America the Beautiful. Writing one anthem would be enough for most songwriters, but in 1941, he wrote another. White Christmas would go on to sell 100 million copies for Bing Crosby and become one of America's and the world's most beloved Christmas songs, right up there with Silent Night. Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear 
sleigh bells in the snow. If you turned Irving Berlin's story into a movie, critics would say it was too improbable, too ridiculous. It's that American. He was born Israel Berlin on May 11, 1888, one of eight children born in Russia. His father was a cantor in a synagogue where Irving got his musical talents. But being Jewish in Russia in those times was hard. Anti-Semitism was rampant and it was ugly. So ugly that the Berlin family was forced to move after their village was destroyed in a violent anti-Semitic pogrom. His family fled religious persecution and came to America, settling in New York in 1893. Like millions before and after them, they didn't come here to change America. They came here to have America change them. And theirs was a family in need of change. According to his biographer Lawrence Bergreen, Berlin admitted to no memories of his first five years in Russia except for one of his father, quote, lying on a blanket by the side of a road watching his house burn to the ground. By daylight, the house was in ashes. But there would be more tragedy to come. Indeed, Berlin's early life had more sad stories than the Old Testament, none worse than the loss of his father when he was a mere eight years old. Irving had no choice but to take to the streets of New York to help support his family. And to say those streets were tough would be an understatement, a poverty the likes of which poor people in America today would not even recognize gripped the Lower East Side of New York, the neighborhood where young Irving lived. There was no HUD, no food stamps, no Pell Grants, no government help at all. By the time he was 20, Berlin had stumbled upon his life's work. He took a job as a waiter in Chinatown where he discovered that his tips skyrocketed when he hummed various songs of the day. Singing cover tunes a cappella at dinner tables soon turned into a stint at songwriting. He collaborated with friends at first and soon got his break as a staff writer with a music publishing house in New York. His meteoric rise as a songwriter in Tin Pan Alley and then on Broadway started in 1911 with Alexander's Ragtime Band which would become a hit by various artists, including Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong. The song topped the charts when Bing Crosby recorded it. Come on in here, come on in here. Oh, you dog. Alexander's Ragtime Band. But ragtime music was not where Berlin's heart was. He wanted to create his own version of American music, one that appealed to the diversity and richness of his adopted nation. He described the audience he was trying to reach with his music, Quote, my ambition is to reach the heart of the average American, not the highbrow nor the lowbrow, but that vast intermediate crew which is the real soul of the country. The highbrow is likely to be superficial, overtrained, and supersensitive. The lowbrow is warped and subnormal. My public is the real people. Irving Berlin made good on his mission, creating the richest catalog of popular music by any songwriter in American history. It's been said that writing a song is a bit like giving birth, laborious and miraculous. Irving Berlin gave birth to over 1,500. He credited his productivity to an inborn work ethic. Sal Bernstein, Berlin's publishing manager, observed that, quote, it was a ritual for Irving to write a complete song, words and music, every day. He told anyone who would listen that he did not believe in inspiration. 
His most successful compositions were the result of work. Few men or women write so many songs, let alone so many standards. Fewer still write songs that become a part of our national identity. And when we come back, more on the remarkable life of Irving Berlin here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return now to Irving Berlin's remarkable story. His catalog includes such standard as Cheek to Cheek, Always, Putting on the Ritz, Heat Wave, Let's Face the Music and Dance, and How Deep is the Ocean. Whenever we think of great poetry, our minds inevitably turn to the masters like Keats, Browning, or Shelley, and never to music. We seem to forget that some of our lyric writers are really fine poets. One such famous poet is Irving Berlin. Judy Garland now brings us one of Mr. Berlin's loveliest poems set to one of his most glorious melodies, How Deep is the Ocean, which Judy sings to mothers everywhere. How much do I love you? I'll tell you no Deep is the ocean, how high is the sky, how many times a day do I think of you, how many roses are sprinkled with What special gifts did Berlin have? What special qualities did his songs possess? Quote, His work isn't witty, but it's very down-to-earth, the late great cabaret singer Bobby Short told the Washington Post reporter Tom Shales, and it is amazingly natural. Another songwriter said this, composer Mark Sandrich, His songs didn't have any seams. They didn't feel like anybody wrote them. It was as if Berlin just walked down the street heard them, and they'd been there all along, and all he had to do was just reach up and pluck them out of the air. Berlin did all of his composing and playing without any formal musical training. He could not read or write music, and taught himself to play piano. He played almost entirely in the key of F-sharp, because it was easier for his untrained fingers to play the elevated and well-spaced black keys. He said this about that, quote, The black keys are right there under your fingers. The key of C, ah, that's for people who study music. Berlin loved to boast about his ignorance of music and believed it actually gave him a competitive advantage. Because he didn't know the rules of songwriting, he explained, he was free to violate them. 
It's a story about so many things, Irving Berlin's life story, hard work, creativity, and America itself. Tell me another country where his story is even possible. The man who gave us White Christmas was Jewish. The man who gave us God Bless America was born in Russia. You can't make that up. The only identity politics Irving Berlin embraced was being an American. No hyphens, no cynicism, no apologies. Just a whole lot of gratitude. In fact, God Bless America was written as a prayer seeking God's blessing and peace for America. It's why it resonated more in 1939 than when he'd written it in 1918. War was on the horizon again, even if Americans didn't fully know it. Over the years, the beautiful opening verse has been scrapped by most singers, though one singer always includes it in his performances. The great Irish tenor, Ronan Tynan. And here it is. In 1940, Berlin established the God Bless America Fund and set aside the song's royalties to the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of America. It's generated tens of millions of dollars to both groups. And in a rare television appearance in 1967, Irving Berlin came out to center stage onto the Ed Sullivan Show, and he sang the song he wrote, first by himself, and then soon after, with Boy Scouts to the right and Girl Scouts to the left. Irving Berlin's music was a gift to the country that adopted him and transcended all religions, races, and ethnicities. It also transcended musical styles and time, too. Blue Skies reached the top of the charts when it was written in 1927, It made its way back to the charts in 1978 when country music singer Willie Nelson covered it. That's some legs for a song. Blue skies smiling at me 
Nothing but blue skies do I see. In the 1946 musical Annie Get Your Gun, Annie Oakley lamented falling in love with Frank Butler. In the Berlin gem, I got lost in his arms. The lyrics read like a poem aimed straight at the heart, as meaningful today as when they were written 70 years ago. I got lost in his arms And I had to stay It was dark in his arms And I lost my way From the dark came a voice And it seemed to say just can't recall but his arms held me fast and it broke the fall and I said to my heart as it foolishly kept jumping all around kept jumping all around I got lost America got lost in Irving Berlin's music, and from the dark, we can still hear his voice, soothing us, healing us. Berlin kept to himself, and he made no public appearances during the last decade of his life, except for an event to mark his 100th birthday celebration at Carnegie Hall. He died one year later from natural causes at the age of 101. In a letter to Alexander Wolcott half a century ago, Jerome Kern, another great composer of popular music who gave the country showboat, offered what may be the best and last word on the importance of Irving Berlin's work. Quote, Irving Berlin has no place in American music, Kern wrote. He is American music. Irving Berlin's story here on Our American Story. How I felt as I fell I can't recall But her arms held me fast And it broke the fall And I said to my heart as it foolishly kept jumping all around I got lost but look what I
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special Fathers series, which tells the stories of fathers with special needs children, and it's brought to us by the Special Fathers Network, which matches up longtime fathers who have children with special needs with brand new ones for fellowship and mutual counseling on their shared journey of ups and downs. And you can learn more about it at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. And now, here's our own Joey Cortez with this edition. Skip Giannopoulos is happily married with four daughters. Yes, it is possible to be happily married with four daughters, at least when you have a sense of humor, like Skip's. As I like to say, I'm a minority in a sorority. (laughs) (laughs) A sense of humor that Skip would need when he would have not one, but two daughters with special needs. One daughter, Jessica, with Down syndrome, and another daughter, Cassidy, with Down syndrome and autism. Particularly with Down syndrome, there's no predisposition to having a second child with Down syndrome once you have your first. So literally it is like lightning striking twice. In fact, um, thought a little bit about buying lottery tickets after that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was very unlikely to have two, two kids with Down syndrome. In fact, we don't know any other families that are in, in our spot naturally. And Skip's initial reaction to learning that his daughter Jessica had Down syndrome, was not great. We found out about her diagnosis in the hospital delivery room. Wow. And it was shocking. Um, you know, I remember uh, just thinking, you know, being in the financial planning industry and, and business, thinking, uh, of course, jumping way out into the future, thinking about what retirement was going to be like with a uh, with a adult child living with us and um, you know really probably came to some very negative pictures of what my life was going to be like Um, and I would say it was a it was a dark spot to be in did not have any people that I could uh, reach out to that had been there before I was so felt a little bit alone and um, I remember, I remember one of the first phone calls I made uh, was to my brother, and um, you know his comment was, "I guess there's going to be no more short bus jokes in our family." <laughs> you know, it just goes to show a little bit of how we, you know, we just really did not have any real connection with special needs uh, community. And that would certainly change. Skip and his wife Gail would become one of the four founding couples of Gigi's Playhouse a place of play in suburban Chicago for one girl named Gigi and her friends who also happen to have Down syndrome. Gigi is uh, my daughter Jessica's uh, best friend. Uh, They do quite a bit together and um, Gigi and Jessica are about six months apart. So Gigi's Playhouse has kind of grown up right alongside of our Jessica and and certainly Gigi uh, as well. But uh, Gigi's Playhouse is a resource center for uh, kids and families of kids with special needs, and particularly with Down syndrome. As time has gone on, it's expanded um, in terms of the program offering, and it's now uh, expanded quite a bit in terms of its footprint as well. 
from one location in Hoffman Estates. It's grown to about 30 locations all across the country and even one location in Mexico as well. And just like that, from no participation in the special needs community to making an impact worldwide. But what kind of impact does Gigi's Playhouse really have? Well, according to Skip, one of the most difficult things for parents who are pregnant with a child who has special needs is that the medical community almost solely focuses on the negatives. So Gigi's Playhouse fills in the gaps by reaching out to those in the medical community and providing them with materials so that they can better comfort and encourage their patients who have children with special needs. An important mission to help prevent disturbing interactions such as the one that Skip and his wife Gail had with their doctor when pregnant with their second daughter who has special needs. We knew uh, in advance about our second daughter, Cassidy's diagnosis. And uh, notwithstanding the fact that the doctors knew we already had a daughter with Down syndrome, they sent us to a, uh, a, um, a genealogist, I believe is the, the, the terminology, and he is literally asking us if we want to terminate the pregnancy. And I'm thinking to myself, you know we already have a daughter with Down syndrome. Would you, why are you even asking the question? And, and secondly, you know, it, it also implied, you know, do we regret having our first daughter? And we're hoping that the message to the medical community, this positive message, and that kids with Down syndrome, you know, have value and that they can bring uh, an element of love and, 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 and care and uh, happiness into a family that, you know, might, might not otherwise exist. We're hoping that that message is going to override some of the things that they have really been trained up on. And when you think about a met, the medical training process, really all they see are the medical negatives that come out of a diagnosis like that. Half of all kids with Down syndrome are born with a hole in their heart. So half of the kids that we know have a big scar on their chest and have gone through open heart surgery uh, multiple times. And, you know, as a medical provider, that's, I guess, seen as a negative. And they're just not seeing the positive side of the coin. So what is the positive side of the coin? Our 16-year-old daughter, Stephanie, there are days where she'll come home and she'll barely acknowledge my presence. <laughs> she will storm right to her room and, you know, that might be the last we see of her for, uh, for a few hours anyways, until she needs something or gets hungry. Right. <laughs> so contrasting that to our kids with special needs, you know, Cassidy was still uh, in fifth grade and is one to, um, you know, I could be sitting watching uh, something on TV and she'll come right up to the couch and cuddle up and, uh, you know, have a conversation with me. So, I mean, it's, you know, there are just times where the kids with special needs are, it's just such a refreshing perspective to have. And when you think about it, even going forward, you know, how would it be going through life where, and this is, I would say, typical of kids with, with Down syndrome or people with Down syndrome, you know, most, most people with Down syndrome don't care a whole lot about money. They don't care a whole lot about trying to impress you. Uh, they want you to be happy. 
they want to love you and you know those are those are the important things for people with down syndrome i would say typically i realize i'm overgeneralizing but you know we can all learn a lot from that we can all try to be more like that quite frankly and um hoping a little bit of that rubs off on my 16 year old and in the end we have a father skip who is very proud jessica has just done such a great job in terms of being independent so think about this for a this would would have been last year in eighth grade even for summer school this year she would tell us when she's ready to go to bed she would shower she would brush her teeth she would put herself to bread I would I would go pray with her she would set her alarm clock she would get up on her own have breakfast on her own get dressed on her own and then be ready and waiting for the school bus she'd pack her own backpack and it's like you know there's probably not a lot of typical kids that do that as well as Jessica did and thanks for that work Joey what a great story and thanks to all the work that the special fathers network does and you can learn more and sign up to be a part of this fantastic network at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. Skip Giannopoulos' story, so many families in this country's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love music here on the show, and we love history. And that's why this is our favorite segment, and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. You can do anything but get off of my blue suede shoes. This Week in Music History, 1955. Carl Perkins recorded Blue Suede Shoes at Sun Studios in Memphis. The rock and roll classic became a U.S. number two and a U.K. number ten. It's been covered by artists from Elvis Presley to John Lennon. But it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready now, go cat, go. It was also on this same day in 1955 that RCA Records purchased Elvis Presley's recording contract from Sam Phillips at Sun Records for an unprecedented sum of $35,000. Step in my face. And in 1968, Diana Ross and the Supremes were number one on the U.S. singles chart with Love Child, their 11th number one in the U.S. The song is also notable for knocking off and keeping the Beatles' Hey Jude off the top spot in the United States.
1988, Bon Jovi started a two-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with a lead single from the band's album, New Jersey. Bad Medicine became the group's third U.S. number one. This week in music history, 1946, Dwayne Allman of the Allman Brothers Band was killed in a motorcycle accident in Macon, Georgia when he collided with the rear of a flatbed truck that had turned in front of him. In 2003, he was ranked number two in Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time, second only to Jimi Hendrix. Also born this week in music history, 1947, Joe Walsh, guitarist, singer-songwriter for the Eagles and solo. Here, Walsh takes us through his hit single, Life's Been Good. There's a room in my head where I have all these bits and pieces, and uh, when it's time to write a song, I take them and put them on a table like a jigsaw puzzle and see what fits. So that's what I did. So I had, I had this one idea that I thought was pretty cool, and it goes like this. So I thought, well, that's a good beginning. That gets me, you know, there. But then I had no idea what to do. I had this other thing from that was going to be this other song that has nothing to do with the beginning. And that goes like this. And so I put that on there. Because it worked. It's in a different key, but it worked, and that way I didn't have to think about the words yet. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. In 1991, Freddie Mercury died of complications from AIDS at his home in London's Holland Park at age 45. During his career with Queen, he scored over 40 top 40 singles, including the worldwide number one, Bohemian Rhapsody. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. And in 1968, the Beatles' White Album was released in the U.S. Notable for the eclectic nature of its songs, the album has sold over 30 million copies worldwide. Say you want a revolution, well, 
1987, the song Revolution became the first Beatles recording to be licensed for a television commercial, which prompted a lawsuit from the surviving members of the group. And in 1991, this week in music history, Alice Cooper came to the rescue of two of his fans, whose California home was about to be repossessed. Mr. Cooper signed autographs to help raise money for the couple. Nineteen years later, in the year 2000, a burglar broke into Alice Cooper's home and made off with over $6,000 worth of clothes, shoes, and cameras belonging to the singer's daughter. I used to be such a sweet, sweet In 1974, the Rolling Stones scored their fifth U.S. number one album with its only rock and roll. It was the last appearance of Mick Taylor on any of the Stones' albums. It peaked at number two in the U.K. And in 1970, two months after his death, Jimi Hendrix was at number one on the U.K. singles chart with Voodoo Child's Slight Return, the closing track on Electric Ladyland, the third and final album by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. This was the guitarist's only UK number one. And in 1979, Pink Floyd released another Brick in the Wall Part 2, which rapidly topped the charts in the UK, followed by the US and further nine other countries. Featuring the voices of school children from North London that were close to Pink Floyd's Britannia Row Studios, it was the group's first hit since 1967. To hear Our American Stories complete special on Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, go to ouramericannetwork.org. And that's This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
Give me 